Okay, so today we have Demetrius Lynch. He is the founder and principal of Lines, which is an architectural firm based out of the Los Angeles, California area. He is also the chief creative officer for Gable Media, which is um, kind of an umbrella uh, for a bunch of different uh, podcasts and media entities within the architectural engineering and construction wor world. Um, he is also the host of Spaces podcast, so um, he is much more evolved in the podcast world than I, <laughs> um, and quite a bit more curated and developed. So with that, thank you, Demetrius, for joining today and for uh, taking part in my little deal here. Oh, no. Thank you so much, Carrie. Uh, really excited to get into this conversation. We all start somewhere. Uh, I think you're doing a good job so far. Uh, so I'm sure you're going to continue to evolve. Your con complete structure may even change. <laughs> it's just a constant evolution in this process. But uh, welcome to the podcasting family and, uh, <laughs> and keep it going. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, I guess maybe if you could start a little bit with maybe your backstory, um, where you grew up, uh, kind of what got you involved in architecture. Um, so yeah, if you want to maybe start with your background a little bit. Yeah, so I uh, grew up in Los Angeles, uh, specifically Compton, California, um, and, you know, been in the area for my entire life. Um, if you're in, if any of your listeners are familiar with the area, I kind of went from LA to the uh, Inland Empire area where I went to college, which was Cal Poly Pomona, and then ended up in Orange County uh, for work uh, and been in Orange County. Bounced a little bit around between the Inland Empire and Orange County, but now I'm in Orange County specifically, and uh, and that's kind of my living situation <laughs> uh, so again i mentioned I, I went to cal poly pomona for architecture um, after that program i i had a pretty diverse background in uh, my architectural career so i've done a lot of different things started in the high-end custom luxury market doing a lot of uh, fancy homes for some very wealthy people <laughs> Okay. And then went into development homes, um, touched the retail market, uh, medical market, a uh, lot of different things. So I have a very diverse background, so um, may come through a little bit. I can speak to a lot of different things uh, as in uh, in our conversation today. But um, that's a quick snapshot. Um, after uh, I came to a point in my practice or uh, in architecture where I just stopped learning to some to some degree, and I was like answering my own questions or finding my own answers to any questions that I had, and I was like, I might as well just do this myself, uh, <laughs> and then started my practice. And simultaneously, I saw a need in the in the industry to have certain conversations. So then I started the podcast simultaneously, and it's just kind of snowballed into all of these different things that that I'm sure we'll get into but um, that that moment which was uh, 2017 it just branched and took my career in so many different directions that I never would have saw foresaw uh, years ago. 
Okay. So what, like, um, to the, one thing that one idea that came up or question, I guess that came up. So which side of it, I mean, there's really three sides of it. I see there's the entrepreneurship of owning your own business. There's the architectural side of it. And then there's the podcasting side of it, which is tied together, but a different outlet. Um, which one fuels you more? Or is that an unfair question to ask? Fuels me more? Yeah. Um, which one are you most excited? Like if you had to choose between the three of them, if you didn't have deadlines, which one would you choose to do first? Yeah, that's, uh, it's hard to split them up because they're so tied together. Like the, the, the architectural practice part of it feeds it it fuel it feeds my knowledge and how i create the media um, the media gets the word out which is a different we sort of pre-discussed it's a different form of architectural practice in my opinion um, sharing the knowledge of what i do and, and my experience and what i've learned um, and then the entrepreneurial side is just really exciting about taking that taking on all these different aspects of what's possible for our industry um mm -hmm. so it keeps evolving into this new thing it's like every day it's it's a new new approach to the same thing um so it, yeah it's hard to pick one <laughs> over the other because they're so connected and they feed mm -hmm. into each other which is the fuel to keep going overall Right. So I completely skirted right. your your question well, or the answer to your question. I appreciate that. Um, I still think it's an answer. It's just, I mean, it's the truth of it, right? It's not as easy as just, it's not, it's not as linear as like one thing or the other. Yeah. And I, I can agree, like in my small experience, or, you know, my very brief experience of doing this, like I feel like right before an interview, I always get a little bit nervous, a little bit excited, nervous. And then afterwards, I'm like super fueled and ready to go and do whatever I need to do on the business side of things. Yeah. So I think, like you said, it's just this balance of like the different avenues that you need to be a whole person. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's a good sign. That's a good thing. If you're getting nervous, that means you care. Uh, you want to deliver something and uh as long as you if you, you always have to keep that that nervousness which is weird yeah <laughs> do you still not... have it do you still oh, have it for sure oh for sure <laughs> every time i get i get sick <laughs> before every interview before i do something new uh i get ill <laughs> every single time um Are you know that it's a good thing right yeah, because because you're you're pushing your limits every single yeah. time. If you're not getting nervous, if you're not getting those queasy feelings, you're not pushing yourself hard enough or far enough. Um, and I think in order to create something new, to to develop and and find out, you know, what's possible, you have to be nervous the entire mm -hmm. time, which is weird. But and it's constant anxiety <laughs> it's a life of anxiety but i think it's necessary if you want to you know have crazy goals whatever it may be you you mm -hmm. have to be nervous the entire time which is an yeah. unfortunate part of it but <laughs> that, that's that's uh i forget the saying but that's where the fruit is you have to go out on the limb yeah no i appreciate you saying that that helps a lot actually makes me feel a little bit better um <laughs> i stopped yeah. I, when i first started i used to send messages to friends like with you know the green puke emoji or whatever <laughs> exactly. before 
event and be like, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. And now it's like, I know, I know what's going to happen at the tail end of that. So there's no need to drag anybody through the mud. <laughs> I, I think though, if you, if you ever start to not get nervous, there's, you have to add something new to it. Um, yeah. You have to keep adding, adding to it to, to make yourself uncomfortable again. That's, that's how you that if you're not nervous, that's a call to that something else needs to be changed or added. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> so switching gears a little bit. So when you like, when did you get the um, idea that you wanted to be an architect or like what, like, when did you start on that path? Was this something that you thought of when you were younger or something that evolved through time or when did that start to happen? both uh so it was third grade uh, that the seed was actually planted so i went to a school that was uh very uh ambitious and 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 dedicated to educating its students on african-american history and culture um, and we had a particular cl uh, class that did um, egyptian civilization history and we talked about everything under the sun as far as the Egyptian Egyptian civilization. And specifically, we got into Imhotep, who was considered in some circles a god of architecture. And mm -hmm. at my third grade level brain, I was like, ooh, god of architecture. If, I could be, if I'm an architect, I can be a god. Ooh, so cool. <laughs> uh, so that was the seed that was planted and we had done um, and then sort of in tandem with that we had a group project where we built uh, I don't think it was to any actual actual scale but we built a pyramid and just going through that the motions of creating something from scratch uh, it really I think implanted the seed of architecture okay. and then between then and high school I'm not sure that it was necessarily in the forefront of my mind but I was always artistic through through my time as a child and uh, my mom really pushed me to to draw all the time and when I you know throughout my school years I really loved math and at some point in high school a counselor or somebody's like oh you're really good at math and you like art smash those together and that's an architect <laughs> and so yeah I uh, ended up going down that path so it's uh that's kind of how I got into it um, okay. and surprisingly someone asked me this recently but surprisingly the art and the math is not what kept me in architecture it was actually the psychology and sociology of our practice that really kept me tied to it um so that's that that's what kind of kept me going throughout the whole process okay so can you elaborate a little bit more on the psychology and the sociology of architecture yeah so architecture is a wide-ranging practice uh, we cover a lot through our education uh, practice that uh, you know we touch on sociology we touch on psychology we um, and then all the just you know math and design element to it but mm -hmm. you're creating spaces for people uh, so there was this you know greater influence of you have to understand people and our spaces have an impact on the way that you your mood, the way that your your health, your mood, the um, 
your anxiety levels, the relaxation. The, I mean, it, it's so connected to how you operate within a space and considering that most of most people have heard this stat, but considering that we spend 90% of our time indoors, um, it is very critical to understand people and how to um, develop a space that doesn't stress them out, that's properly vented to um, make sure that they're in a healthy environment. Um, and there's all these different components to make sure that you are providing a space that is good for the occupant. Okay. So that that's, I mean, that kind of ties into your podcast too, right? Talking yeah. to people about these things and human perception and, you know, what's important from a psychology psychological standpoint, I guess, right? So, exactly. so that that kind of triggered something in my mind. So I read your blog post, Did the Life of yep. a Black Architect in America. Correct. Similar to that, right? Yep. Um, so you talked in there a little bit about just uh, like a young, you know, like at a young age and like uh, how, how being exposed, like kids that are exposed to situations with high volume outside and, you know, just a lot of distraction, how that affects test scores. So that's the environment, right? Like the, like your internal, your interior environment that you're growing up. Um, can, I mean, I don't know, maybe the best way to talk about this, but, you know, I guess I'll just offer. So like, I think we grew up very differently. So like I grew up in South Dakota in a small town of South Dakota. Diversity for me was if you're a Lutheran or Catholic, like that was the level of diversity that I was exposed to. Um, maybe if you could elaborate a little bit as far as, you know, the way that you grew up and the diversity that you encountered that you grew up with. Um, because I think, I'm guessing that we grew up very differently, but I think our goals and our passions are very similar at this point in our careers anyway of building something crafting something creating a better space for people mm -hmm. so can you maybe talk about um you know your growing up and you know just some of those challenges mm -hmm. yeah um so what you're alluding to that i referenced in that that post was uh there's there's studies that show how our environment can affect us and it shows that, you know, uh, specifically there was a study shown of children next to an airport and how there's a decline in their, their grades because of the interference, the noise interference and the, the pollution interference. So just imagine, um, just in a, a small snapshot, just imagine we're having this conversation and all of a sudden there's a loud bang. You whip your head around and you're looking. Now imagine that all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. in an environment, uh, inner city or low income where situations are, you're low on resources and it sort of breeds a environment where people are fighting and scrapping to survive. Uh, there's a gro um, growth in gang violence. There's a growth in, you know, drug use or, or different things like that. And, and again, this is not, um, and not, not again, but, but this is not uh, this, the same. This is not a monolith. So there's different levels across America for different communities. Some are extremely bad. Some are not as bad. Some are, you know, somewhere in between. But uh, just imagine that type of environment all the time. So there's gunshots. There's a helicopter flying over your house. There's, um, you know, 
people banging on your door or in a situation where there's a lot of people living in one house that only has a bedroom or two and there's constant people moving in and out um, or walking in and out, uh, having friends over and you don't have your own space to study. All of these things impact the way that you learn, the, the things that you take in. Um, you don't have the focus to, to do the things that you're, quote, supposed to be doing. And you have a lot of things pulling you in a lot of different directions and clouding your input. Um, and it's difficult to, to do the things that you're, quote, supposed to do when you have so many in inputs, so much influence in a lot of different directions that can be bad uh, in some cases. So, and we're, and we're getting to speak to today, we're getting sort of a massive exposure to that technologically in that there's so much information available now that our judgment as a national community is completely altered because there's so much noise right now uh, digitally. Mm -hmm. And so taking that back to what the experience of someone in an inner city, you have all of this noise and you can't discern what's right, what's wrong, what's clear, what's a, you know, a bad route to take. And it just makes things difficult. And it's just a compounding pressure that, um, you know, you're on a razor's edge to, to, to get to what we perceive, perceive as success. So long-winded answer to try and paint the picture of what it's like and, you know, how that environment can affect someone uh, from different communities. So what, like, how do you, like, I know it's, it's a very big and loaded question, but my question is how do you mitigate all of those things so that someone can be focused so that they can not be stressed out? Um, and that's, I mean, that's like a bazillion dollar question, right? Because it's so multifaceted. There's so many different things, but maybe what are like some baby steps to help with that? And, and if you want to tie it into architecture, great. Cause I know you were talking about that too, just about like the psychology of architecture too. So what are some things that can be done to help with that? Yeah, th there's really, um, there's really two sort of components. I think to that it is the built environment is a big part of that. Um, I think the probably maybe the biggest part is more of a policy thing and for us as a society to make the decision and to push uh, for this to happen is a commitment to equal education across the board mm -hmm. um, so it's not education should not be tied to the income of your community everybody should have the same level of educate education resource um, access to the equipment needed to to learn and to to um, to be able to get that positive input um, right now it's tied to in income and when mm -hmm. communities you know whether intentional or not uh, whether when communities are devoid of resources and it makes you know you're you're navigating that razor's edge to get to success and sometimes you know to get sometimes the part of that success is leaving that community 
the income that you do are able to generate also leaves that community. Um, mm -hmm. So with education tied to our education system, it's a huge problem for these communities mm -hmm. and for these kids that are trying to get to the next level. Right. On, a, on a built environment front, um, again, this comes to capital of, uh, you know, what, what, as, what, what do we perceive as important in this society? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we're driven by profit as a society. So when you're, when developers or anyone that, that is involved in the built environment looks at low income communities, they see a very low, if any, profit margin. So if they do do something there, they're not putting their heart into it. They're not investing in it. Um, everything is low quality. Uh, sound transfers through walls very easily because they're not doing upgraded construction. Mm -hmm. um, so that goes back to that, that issue of noise and input. Um, mm -hmm. Apartments are very poorly constructed. So you hear your neighbors screaming and all the things that are going on. Um, so there's that level of, you know, how do we invest in these communities and commit to providing the same level of good quality spaces for people that live in all different, you know, locales? Because I think a good uh, built environment is also uh, a requirement. Um, it's a, you know, right for, uh, for humans to have uh, shelter, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. so how do we commit to good quality shelter and environments for everyone to, to be able to have good inputs and, and, and uh, be able to develop in a, in a, in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a legislative and a policy issue, right? Like, cause it's funding, like it all comes down to funding yeah. and so many times like you're talking about like in communities where uh you know like lower income communities that means a lower tax base too so so many of the public schools are funded by their you know their tax ratio so exactly. that's a lower base and it just and like you said so somebody gets out of that environment to for a better life or something and they take all of that betterness that they put into the world and they they output it somewhere else then exactly exactly and um and then as far as the built environment you know maybe maybe it's not necessarily uh just capital but it is i think like you said a, a policy side maybe we elevate our standards across the board of you know there's not just simple uh cheap construction that's even allowed anymore maybe there is you know the bottom standard is something much more higher quality than what than what we can get across right now and mm -hmm. not allowing people to cut corners on construction quality uh, to increase their profit margin, but to deliver an actual good quality space. You and that's can't. a long-term solution then, right? Because like if they're building something that if they're cutting corners, the design life of that is less. So exactly. in 20 years, you're in exactly the same situation that you were in before because now, you know, like from a structural standpoint, now things are starting to settle. You've got members that are failing. So now you have to, 
you either have like a subpar place where you have the exact same issues that you had before, or you have to come in and do remedial action or rebuild. And it's just a catch 22, unless if like you're saying it's invested in properly to begin with. Exactly. And there's, um, you know, a, a instance that I ran into recently is actually at my middle school. Um, the principal called me and she knew I was an architect and said, can you just come and kind of look at this situation we have going on? And I was actually not even looking at this specific thing. There was a whole, a whole nother <laughs> thing that I was called in to look for. Um, but then I walked into one room and you could see the ceiling caving in. She didn't even notice it, but um, I was like, what's going on over here? She's like, oh, I don't know. And I'm looking and I'm looking around and all of a sudden you can see a pinhole where, uh, you know, there was a, you could tell there was water damage and there was water leakage and go up to the roof and you can see how poorly the roof, there's a roof deck, how poorly it was uh, assembled and constructed. It didn't have the proper slope. It didn't have, you know, certain uh, elements to, to the building that would make it drain properly. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure there was some contractor that cut corners there or whatever. Um, but there's just these little things of how do we elevate those standards and not allow stuff like that to happen across the board? Um, is there more elevated inspections or I don't know, there's, there's, there has to be something that we can do um, on a standard level to elevate these things uh, across the board, no matter what community you're from, you have to be in a good quality space. Mm -hmm. I think at this point too, it's kind of our responsibility as design professionals to like bring awareness to it too, right? So, because a lot of times you know what you're surrounded by. So if you don't see people in different neighborhoods and you just, you don't realize that there's issues, right? So like now that when you're talking, like I, I, I hear it as like almost like a call to action for myself of like, I need to become aware of these things and, and bring attention and awareness to, you know, for other people for these things too, so that there can be, you know, the policy, um, you know, legislative action or whatever it is just to, to kind of help even the playing field a little bit. Cause like you said, kids, they deserve to be in a space where where they can learn appropriately and safely and yeah so in just to sort of color that that part of the conversation all the kids that were in that school had to be moved out for months and they were sort of throwing together classrooms in a local church i think and then they had to be bounced to somewhere else um you, you can't think that that's a good environment for children to learn if you're bouncing around and trying to figure out, okay, where's the class at? How do we, how do we configure this church or whatever space to make it suitable to teach these children? Um, Cause they're not able to go back into their school and they're, they're all writing letters and cards saying, Oh, we can't wait to get back to our school. Um, but there's this giant hole or, you know, ceiling that probably going to collapse pretty soon in the cafeteria mm -hmm. where all these, kids would be sitting um, if it happened to collapse at that time like how tragic of a story would that be and so that's like the underlying point of doing my podcast as well is 
adding a different perspective to these conversations because not everybody understands what the other side lives like um, and goes through and these type of situations don't um, don't rise to the surface all the time uh, until it's tragic and um, how do we avoid the tragedy <laughs> and mm -hmm. and how can we resolve this in advance well, I also see that that situation as um, I see another kind of issue with that of a ceiling that's failing right and like if there isn't funding to repair it appropriately you know maybe there's just like some little crutch fix that they do that isn't really helping yeah. other than maybe buying another six months but if there isn't funding for it exactly. um, so yeah bringing awareness to all of those things is super important yeah so the podcast is part of that of you know bringing these conversations to the to the surface and sort of elevating everyone's understanding of what we do in our industry how impactful uh, what we do is to um, the occupants that use these spaces and sort of explaining all the external forces that have made our spaces evolve so we get into the historical reference of you know how this particular building type started and what political influence made that type of space evolve over time and how did we get here where we are today and how is that going to evolve in the future whether it's uh, pandemic related or technology related how are we what's the next step of that space so we sort of ex so we sort of explore that that whole range of each individual space so we've talked about schools and sky uh, skyscrapers and uh, the traditional home apartments we've touched quite a few topics already so uh, if you're okay. if any of your interested listeners are interested um, you know you can jump on our website spacespodcast.com and just plug that really quick <laughs> uh, yeah. To, yeah. to see the catalog that we've developed so far and got a long list of stuff to still hit. <laughs> well, and I think one of the things I love most about your podcast is that, um, you know, you are like, you have like the short express versions or whatever too. So like you'll tack tackle a subject and it's like, okay, we've got 20 minutes to do this and you tackle it and you get as much information as you can in that time. Uh, but also just the, the diversity of subject matter. Cause I know there's quite, a, I think you were talking about, um, like the wastewater system in one of like uh, ancient wastewater systems or whatever in one of them. Is that right? Is that yeah, right? Did a water treatment was one of our okay. recent episodes. So we, we started originally as uh, just a long form episodes, uh, which are about an hour. Sometimes they can push up to like an hour 20, um, but that's the long form episode. So we have a, a bigger conversation amongst uh, all the people that I mentioned, uh, our host team and whoever the expert is. So we have a broad uh, conversation there and then we do sort of a, a produced segment, think like 99% invisible, um, sort of produced segment that discusses that evolution. And then we do the, yeah, the express version that's much more, you know, you're getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth and getting dressed <laughs> kind of thing. Just, just pop one of those on and listen to that. 
and and with the water treatment one specifically trying out something new uh, where it's not the uh, sort of panel discussion with it it's just mm -hmm. the produced segment so trying that out to uh, see kind of what what our listeners gravitate towards and uh, like I said constant evolution and <laughs> pushing the bounds of what what we can do and produce mm -hmm. One other thing, another thing that I like about your podcast is, so Jason has the construction side of things yeah. and you're the design side of things. So it's very good to, I just, I love that interaction and just talking about the practical field side of things and then the design intent and how they kind of merge together. I think that's a really unique and interesting perspective to have both of you doing that. Yeah. And blame each other. <laughs> So and then that was another element to the podcast is trying to get all of us in the industry to understand that all of our jobs are difficult, yeah. and not uh, to, to sort of try to nudge people to stop saying, oh, it's the stupid whatever's fault. And, uh, you know, it's it's all of our faults, yes. right? all of our success. We're all, you know, tied to this together. So <laughs> stop pointing fingers and just let's figure out a solution. <laughs> Okay, that's a perfect segue because I'm a structural engineer and you're an architect. And a yes. lot of times there's a similar blame game that goes on between our industries. So yes. let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and more from a, more from a, a productive um, setting, I guess, of how, how like I or how we as structural engineers can help facilitate your job and help just more that communication, that collaboration, and then vice versa. Um, so yeah, I guess if, it, it, um, I'm trying to think of a question maybe, but I guess I'm thinking of it more as just a conversation of how we can both do our jobs better so that we can uh, kind of have the artistic piece of things and then also the practical side of things so that the skin and the bones of the building go together appropriately. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've had these conversations. I think it's, I think it's more high level. It's not anything specific that I could say, and I don't, nothing's come to the surface really on, in the time of doing this podcast, and I don't think there ever would be a single, you know, magic bullet answer, but I think it's having a willingness to, to be open um, and to understand that it's a flexible, a fluid industry, and to understand that, you know, we all don't have the answers. We're not, none of us are going to hit it out of the park on the first try. Um, and that we need to, you know, be more, have better communication and be willing to understand that we all make mistakes mm -hmm. um, and not be so quick to CYA. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, understand, okay, somebody dropped the ball. <laughs> we know that. How do we figure out how to move forward? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, th I think that's probably the biggest thing across the board is, you know, having that dialogue early and often. So, um, and, and that, I think that's a hard part about, you know, the relationship between architecture and structural engineering is, you know, we as architects have to move the ball pretty far before we get anyone else involved um, to, their willingness to get involved because <laughs> mm -hmm. um, most people are like why are you like if you try to engage someone early they're typically like why do you why are you sending me this email so early you don't even have anything to show me 
it's like, I understand that there's not actual CAD drawings yet, but I'm trying to get your thoughts of, is does anything pop out in your mind of, you know, what would you be looking for? So I can sort of design that in, in advance. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if we reach out for a proposal, maybe uh, on the other side saying, oh, let me know if, if you want any early input or preliminary thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, so just on all sides, having that willingness to start the conversation early and just start to explore together um, mm -hmm. and be willing to and be willing be willing to start the conversation early uh, or right. to accept the conversation early. Well, and I think for you guys too, from like, you know, architects, you're, you're laying out where like the column layout and, you know, where the beams are going and everything, but sometimes you need our input to know what makes sense too. So, and, and that's early on. I mean, that's kind of step one before you start space programming and everything too, knowing where your columns have to go or even what material you're going to be using, right? Yeah. That's the worst when you send it, <laughs> when you send the wide open design and you know we do have some rules of thumb that we try and keep in mind and we're asking the world we know <laughs> it's like i do not want a column here uh but that's the worst when you do a design and uh an engineer sends back their design without even thinking of what you're actually trying to accomplish and just drop a column right in the middle of a room and they're like well that's just how it has to be no, that's not how it has to be. You know, we can push on the client to increase their budget to, to get a larger beam here to carry mm -hmm. that span and not get a column there. Can we have that conversation before you throw the column in there? Yeah. Um, so, you know, having those conversations early and some, and let me just preface and clarify. I know there are some engineers that are really good about this and coming back and saying, you know, I see what you're trying to do, but you know, if we're maintaining a certain budget, a column's going to end up here. Um, so there are people that that do uh, have have that foresight, and I love when people do. <laughs> um, but, there, but there still are those that just send you a finished design with everything you don't want, <laughs> and if you it's ask for changes. And if you ask for changes, their work is already done, so it's an ad service, uh, which is the worst. Because then, as sort of the lead person in the design process, you have to go back to the client and say, the engineer wants to charge extra, and I can't pay for that, so you have to pay for it. Right, right, so, which is never a good conversation. Yeah, that is... <laughs> That is probably one of the worst conversations is asking for more money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, like I always phrase it like, so with the column layouts and that kind of stuff, it's always like, and like, it's not our decision as structural engineers to decide if it's doable or not. Um, I mean, some things just aren't right, but most of the time that conversation or that decision is not ours to make. It's yeah. more of like a conversation of, of complexity and cost. So exactly. if you want to do this, this is what has to happen to do that. Exactly. Um, and, but that's, 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 that's a question for you, the architect and for the owner to make that decision, not for us to make the decision and just say it can't happen. Exactly. And, and that's kind of what I'm getting to is that I understand, but 
don't make that decision. <laughs> uh, right. Don't make that in decision in advance. Like, let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Not everything is just, you know, that's the only way. Um, mm -hmm. we, we can redesign, we can push walls or, you know, do something to, to make it achieve the ultimate goal. Um, but it's a cl collaborative effort on, on, you know, for everybody. So let's have a conversation and figure out, okay, how do we execute this? And I right. think that's, that's probably the biggest thing for all of us is, you know, it's a collaborative industry. Let's have a conversation and don't, uh, don't just make decisions and then send an email just to track that <laughs> it wasn't my fault type deal. Right. And it, that's not really a team player um, attitude either. Like we all have coordination time in our contracts or we should anyway for that back and forth. Yeah. you know within reason but but there's always coordination and back and forth it's never solved right away yeah and there there are and i think that a lot of that gets solved with those early conversations if um i think it should be normal practice that architects provide sketches uh if um yeah provide sketches or you know just rough cad drawings to show a structural engineer sort of the direction and um that engineer can say, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> uh, you know what you're creating here? Um, are you willing to pay for what you're creating? <laughs> or is the client willing to pay for what you're creating? And then, you know, start to develop it early on before, you know, spend too many, too much time and money um, making the, the concept more and more concrete. Right. So. Right. And then if you, I mean, if you go to the level of detailing everything, like if you just like me as a structural engineer, if, if I say, we're just going to do it this way, we're doing a box equal space columns, like that's how we're doing it. And I'm going to detail it and I'm going to send it to you. Yeah. Well, that ends up taking way more time too than when it gets changed. Cause then you have to go through the detailing and everything of it instead of just like a beam size that changes or a column location at a conceptual schematic level. Exactly. Design changes instead of complete full-blown construction documents <laughs> it's harder to undo an issue than to you know massage it early on it's, yeah it's yeah. so much more costly <laughs> to to uh and i really hate the term value engineer uh something much later on right right i think you brought up another good point too about the fault side of things um I think all of us, like, I remember when I first started, like we, we had it ingrained in us, never admit fault. If someone calls and you don't know what's going on with it, don't you dare say, sorry about that. I'm yeah. you know, like you never supposed to never, fault. never an email. <laughs> right. Right. But what makes a contractor the most upset is when, you know, something happens and like, let's say it's glaringly obvious that I did something wrong. And if he calls me up or she calls me up and says, Hey, we had this issue. Like if I say, I don't know, I don't, I, I can't like, if I say I can't help you, or if I say something, you know, if I'm obstinate, like, and if I am not addressing his question or, um, you know, what's going on, like nothing makes them more upset. Right. So, um, I think it's like, like you said, like we all make mistakes. So like owning up to that and there's ways that you can do that effectively and efficiently without compromising your liability insurance, you know, like you can say things um, and, and be proactive about that without 
do it, saying things that you can't say because of liability insurance reasons. So yeah. that's. Yeah, you can address a problem without increasing your exposure, your risk exposure. Um, like I recently had a situation where, and it was rightly not my opinion to, to make the decision because it was a structural thing, but, um, you know, a client reached out and I answered and gave them the direction, the, the best direction that I could an opinion that I could, but let them know the structural engineer needs to make the call on this particular thing because it's their design, it's their liability, um, it's their expertise and opinion to give you the direction here. But mm -hmm. I'm not going to just leave you hanging and just say it's the engineer's fault. Um, right. You know, we we all are, have a role in this, so let's uh, figure it out together. We'll we'll jump on a call, all all of us, all three of us, and talk about and which it should work this way is talk about what's your opinion on the solution? Does that conflict with the way that I see the project working out? Um, you know, we have to have that conversation all together. Mm -hmm. And so much time can be wasted on finger pointing that could be working yeah. towards the solution. Exactly. <laughs> it's like so much energy that gets wasted in that sometimes. It's like, no, like you said, just let's get on a call and let's figure it out. It drives me insane when I see just a chain of emails of you said this and copying in uh, an old email that references something and right. it's like, come on, can we get on the phone and just talk about how do we solve this and move forward? Right. And drawings dated this date and this submittal number and, you know, yeah. like you know that there's a ton of effort that goes into just figuring out who's like the finger pointing of who's yeah. wrong. And it's, that you're not wrong. <laughs> it's easily an hour of checking through a history of emails and paperwork just to find how do you point the finger um, right. as opposed to a five to 10 minute call to figure out the solution. Yes. And <laughs> that's where it needs to go. <laughs> yeah. And I think for all of us, like in the design world, like I think we can do our job better by like being out in the field, right? And seeing like our like our involvement in a project is so much smaller than the contract or the contractor's overall involvement, right? So like something, for instance, a job that I might spend 40 hours designing, like the contractor will spend six months building. So like if we can see how like if one, if I can do my job good, then it it's not extrapolated into a bigger issue out in the field, right? That's the goal. That's the whole goal of it. Yeah. But you know, like if we can see how it's implemented in the field, then we can do it better in the office. And I think that works for both architects and engineers and is super important. Yeah. And that's, God, I wish, that's one thing that I wish that we really could change is getting clients to understand the value of having the architect and engineer uh, on site mm -hmm. uh, to one, see how it goes together. Um, and yes, this is more money. <laughs> Sorry, but have to cover the cost somehow. But mm -hmm. to see, especially for developers that have ongoing multiple projects, but to have the design team out there on the field to see these things go together and where and having those conversations with the actual contractor of how do we get more efficient, mm -hmm. um, I think there's some level of uh, investment in the industry 
to to make sure that we're all engaged through the life of this project going together so that we all elevate our knowledge and experience and get much more efficient on all fronts yeah. um, rather than just generating drawings in a vacuum and answering a few emails here or there and not being aware of all the things that you did in the field to remedy something that you thought was more efficient. Um, let us know, let us see so that, you know, we can incorporate all these things together and move the industry forward, which right. is a massive problem in the industry is that we all operate in a silo, um, mm -hmm. and feel that we all have the genius idea. <laughs> we all have the same genius idea, uh, with some slight variation. Now let's throw all of those ideas in a pot, figure out what's the best one and move the industry forward together rather than having to recreate, reinvent the wheel every single time and just start from zero over and over again. We move yeah. left and right and never forward. And yeah, I feel like every silo has a has like a bouncer too, like or a security guard and like everyone's like so protective of their knowledge, right? And their spreadsheets and whatever they have that they think is their secrets. Like if we could all share that, we could start at a baseline that's very good and then you know, then anything above that and like our, our personal connections and, you know, just the, the, the way that we interact with our clients can be what elevates us to a different level instead of like just base knowledge that we all should have. And in our silos, we're developing it independently instead of sharing it. <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of leads into what we're doing with Gable Media is that, you know, we want to be that place to, to drive the conversation forward um, and not let HGTV set the uh, set the conversation. Uh, we want to have people that are in the field, in the industry that, you know, experience certain things and on, on the cutting edge of certain things and drive that conversation of, you know, the knowledge that is available and what's in the future. How do we improve the industry together? So we're trying to provide all of that um, in one space in very varied, very varied <laughs> forms in entertaining way. Um, so, yeah. And so you're um, rolling out something new next week with Gable Media, I think. So uh, everyone should tune in by the time this airs, it'll already be out, but it'll be new. It'll still be new. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, so next week, I think, right. You've got some new stuff that you're yeah. rolling out for that. Yeah, so Gable Media is uh, basically a platform that uh, myself and Mark LePage have started. Um, Mark is from Entre Architect, if anyone's familiar with that, any of your listeners. Um, he created the Entre Architect platform, and uh, we started talking and got together, I think it's probably over, well over a year now, and uh, we got together to create Gable Media, its own entity, where we're providing a service for um, content creators and those that want to be content creators in the AEC, AEC space, um, you know, thought leaders that want to get their knowledge out there. Mm -hmm. And so we created this platform and space to do that because we think the, the conversation is the most critical piece that our industry is missing. Um, like we were just talking about, these silos have been the biggest detriment to our industry. And uh, 
for whatever reason, <laughs> we, uh, we just don't want to share. So we think that we, we should share all of this knowledge and in doing so, we will all succeed together. So we, we're having a lot of different conversations. Uh, right now it's uh, architecture centric a little bit. Um, these conversations can be gleaned into all different facets of the industry mm -hmm. of the building industry, but most of the conversations right now are being led by architecture uh, based people. <laughs> but but we do you know have conversations about the business of architecture, marketing side specifically. Um, we have like a narrative version show that talks about marketing. Um, my podcast, which talks about the evolution of individual spaces and how um, how that the external inputs have changed and will change these spaces. Then we have one that's uh, on sort of the future of the business side of architecture and the industry. Uh, how can you look to different uh, business models, not just you know chasing a client to to do the next building, but some, what what is what else is available to you? Um, and then who else do we have? And then we have a couple other podcasts that uh, one other podcast that just talks about the general life of an architect. Okay. Uh, and then the last one I think is the technology side. So what technology is coming to the forefront um, and in the near future that's going to completely change the way that we do things and sort of um give some give some insight uh, that we all think we're the only one that knows about it uh sharing all of that knowledge so people can start to come together and sort of uh succeed together yeah that sounds like a great resource and and like you said it's it's people within the industry so people that are actually doing this um day to day when they're not doing podcasting so yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then I think it's uh, valuable for those outside of the industry to get more insight into what we do and the value that it provides, which I think is another important component because we often, going back to the beginning of our conversation, often make decisions based on money and, you know, saving, making a savings here or increasing a profit margin there. Uh, and that shouldn't be the only decision that is you know, driving the way that we do things. So a lot of things are done for a particular reason that, that has nothing to do with money, but quality and the long life of something. So mm -hmm. um, I think these conversations are valuable to those outside of the industry as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and a developer too. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but like on the, the construction and administration side of things, you know, it, it's very common for a developer, not all the time, but sometimes to have like the most like they'll, they'll fee shop, right? And, and yeah. pick the cheapest uh, proposal that they get. But for us as professionals, we like construction documents, we have a certain amount of time. There's a level of service that needs to be provided there no matter what. But the construction administration side, there's some play there. So that level of service can be adjusted. And like you were saying earlier, the more on site we are, the better the end product is. Yep. Like the more value the client gets but sometimes that part if they're not educated in that like it's easy to miss that service yeah because i think it's a very valuable service and it's almost always one of the first things to go or not even make it in the contract uh from the get-go because people don't value it but i think 
our opinion and our ex experience and um, career, uh, our, our expertise and career experience is extremely valuable because not every decision is just, you know, what your perception of the decision is. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more, a lot other reasons why something is done a certain way or designed a certain way. So let's talk about all those different reasons before we make the decision. And right. we all can learn if your reason makes more sense and outweighs the other reason, then now we know, now we all know, okay, this reason is probably going to trump the others. So right. now we learn and we're much more efficient as an industry moving forward. Yeah. And if we can educate our clients, what we're actually doing, right? Like if they can understand it, then we become less of a commodity and more of a service and we get appreciated and we work <laughs> better for appreciated, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. Well, switching gears a little bit. Um, who is somebody that inspires you? Um, you know, th that's a weird question for me because, uh -huh. um, because I don't, I don't necessarily have one particular person and sort of going back to your diversity, uh, question, which is, and this is going very deep rooted, weird, sociological <laughs> thing, historical thing. That weird. Uh, Important, uh, I think is a better word. <laughs> so if we think historically, um, you know, as I'll speak specifically to the black culture here in the United States, uh, black people were typically restricted to levels of entertainment. Um, and that has pervaded society all the way through today. Um, it is often seen as one of the most coveted positions because it's the most paid for or uh, high, has the highest uh, income potential um, because that's what's valued in our society is entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, and historically, that was all that was available outside of just brute uh, labor um, from slave period. The only other thing you would see initially was, you know, someone entertaining their uh, slave owner in some some way. And that has just been the value base all the way to today. If you really look, step back and look at it, um, that is that is it. And and that's also kind of what sparked the my initial the the blog that we initially spoke about. Mm -hmm. Is that just uh, you know just around the time that I, I produced it, what inspired it was the fact that there was such an outpouring for. Um, a recent uh, uh, an entertainer who had recently passed and um, people were so shaken by it um, because all we have to look to as a inspiration are entertainers whether it's sports or actors or music that's all we have to look towards um, as an inspiration so my inspiration my inspirations are mostly in that space of entertainment because that's all that has been promoted and is mostly uh, available. Um, since I've gone and, you know, gotten deeper in my career and um, 
had the wherewithal to to seek out things on my own. There's particular architects that I now am learning more about and and sort of trying to educate myself. Um, but I have a difficult time with saying who my specific inspiration is because I try to find a lot of inspiration in different things, different books, and it's all really moment by moment uh, mm -hmm. as well. Um, I will find inspiration in random things. Um, uh, sometimes it's just purely being told no <laughs> is inspiration enough to, to do something. Uh, so I, I struggle with that inspiration question. Uh, okay. uh, so, yeah, I think uh, it's an answer, but not an answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that just says that you get inspiration from lots of different things, right? Yeah. But I think one thing that brought up, and this kind of touches on, on, you know, kind of what you're talking about too, but like all the things that you were talking about for African-Americans, like it's all body-based, right? Mm -hmm. So it's either like idolized or completely demoralized right like it's one extreme or the other like yeah. in both of those you know all of the stuff that you're talking about and that is it's <laughs> very sad and disheartening actually um and yeah yeah and that's uh and that's the frustrating thing because i know you know there's a lot of talk right now of particular leadership trying to remove um certain levels of education of you know african-american history and you know slavery but i think it's an important context to understand where we've come from and you know all the different contributions throughout history because going to the school that i went to we had an american history book and an african-american history book that we equally referred to but when you look at the American history book, there is a lot of information that is not available in, compared to the one that was in our African-American history book. Um, and understanding all the different components, I think, adds value to people of certain communities to understand that there's, you don't have to be an entertainer. There's value in being something else. And that was the frustration that I had. And, the reason I don't want to say who my inspirations have been is because I think there needs to be some level of devaluing entertainment as our only uh, inspiration. Um, mm -hmm. And I can't necessarily speak to one particular one because I'm still educating myself and learning who do I really, who really speaks to me as someone I want to um, sort of follow and uh, learn from and, and continue my career on. I'm still fairly young, uh, and I think that there's there's a well of people to still study and look towards, and I, I haven't, you know, landed on one particular one just yet mm -hmm. um, as far as someone outside of entertainment that I want to uh, gladly say that this is who I, I want to model myself or, or, you know, promote as an inspiration. Okay. So do you think some of that is like stripping, like things that you thought were important before things that you look to as, you know, aspirational before, and then like more evolved into, you know, more intellect based and like, like more, character intellect based instead of like someone that's super cool yeah for sure 
Okay. Uh, because entertainment, you know, what, what a byproduct of entertainment generates and why it attracts so much attention and sort of idolizing is the boats and the fancy cars and the money. Um, very superficial things uh, that comes like the, the byproduct, the benefit of the entertainment industry. Um, the other, other stuff, the career, the, the other careers that are available, there's more substance to that. You have an interest in that. Um, you, you have a mathematical mind. You have a verbal mind. You, you want to lead. You want to do all these different things that speaks to you as a person. And you're not dancing and singing for people to like you and give you money, but you actually mm -hmm. have a purpose and something you want to leave on this earth and contribute to society for a very specific reason. Um, and there's so many different avenues and things that you can get into that don't, don't have to be entertainment. It's not the only way out. And I think we're doing ourselves a disservice to only uh, idolize entertainers and for those outside of those communities to also idolize and elevate entertainers. Um, people often, you know, tell people that have nothing to do with uh, your industry, oh, you can be the next whoever, but it's something entertainment based. Now there is, you can be the next Obama. Um, and mm -hmm. that, that's a great, great, uh, you know, marker to, to shoot for, but that's not necessarily, um, th that doesn't apply to architecture. There's a lot of different right. architects that, uh, you know, Paul Williams is the one that pops up in my mind right away because he's local LA architect who touched a lot of things. Um, and we can get into the history of him. He had a lot of cool interesting things if you're interested paul williams is a great person to look into and they recently did a pbs uh, documentary on him if you want to look into that but okay. anyway there's a you know there's there's people in each industry that needs to that need to be more elevated we don't have to speak to entertainers and obama <laughs> let's, right. let's get outside of that and and on all fronts um you know let's have a bigger conversation about what's possible Right. Well, and I think in your article too, so I correct my facts if I have them wrong, but I think in architecture, um, there's 2%, is it 2% of like in the, in the U.S., I will say this and then correct me, but 2% of architects in the U.S. are African-American, whereas the public is 13%. Is that a correct fact? Did I say that correctly? Correct. Correct. 2% uh, of licensed architects in the United States are African-American. The even more terrifying statistic, I can't remember the exact number, but of African-American women, it's like 500, 500 people, okay. 500 women, black women are architects in our population of 330 million people. And we make up 13% as a general black population. Um, 500 and some odd women, black women are architects. It's a very, very small, they can fit in a ballroom of a hotel, a hotel ballroom. One single hotel ballroom holds all the black architectural women. That's Just insane. <laughs> That's insane, right? But when you think of how, like all of the hurdles to overcome sometimes, right? And all of the like 
feedback. Like other people are our mentors are our mirrors. Um, and if you're not getting a good reflection from people and if they are not supporting you, and if you don't see yourself in someone that's, you know, um, a mentor or someone that's further along in their career, like it makes it really hard. Right. Yeah. And going back to our original early part of the conversation, how do you build to address the issues of people in a certain community without people in that community? Right. Who's going to speak up for those people if there's no one in the room? Right. When it's predominantly been dominated and it's been very uh, demonized recently, but um, you know, it's a fact that if there's only white males in the room, how do you address a much more diverse population? Um, and this has been so politicized and demonized. No one's attacking the white male, but we're in a community, in a society together, and the community society should speak to all of us. Right. And right. no one's attacking anyone, but let's 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 work together, which right. is the conversation that you know I I am trying to champion is. We are a communal being. We have to work as a community. Right. And there are certain things that that you bring to the table that's completely, only you can bring that to the table. There are certain things that only I can bring to the table. And the more diverse we are, like the better subset we have. Like, and that's so important. And I think this scarcity and abundance mindset, like there's this whole scarcity mindset sometimes of like, Oh, if I am like giving something to someone else that is in need, very much in need, it's taking away from me. But that is not, <laughs> it's just like sharing engineering, right? Or sharing our silos, right? If we can all share together, like the whole like human race, like not to get woo woo, but like the whole human race can be elevated if we can all share together and help each other out and use those voices. Yeah. that are strong for the ones that aren't yeah we elevate together we don't you know dwindle the resources we elevate and evolve together because there's always going to be something next right. especially with technology here there's always going to be something some new way to do something um you're not going to run out of opportunities to do something we're all going to always need something we're all always going to just create out of thin air something else for someone to buy. Um, right. And I think we just create more opportunities and different ways to address our, our needs as a society. Who would have ever thought I needed a computer and a camera and a, uh, you know, phone all in one. Right. <laughs> we, we can just make up things. <laughs> There's always opportunity to do something new, but coming together creates those new opportunities and we're not stuck in our traditions and old ways of thinking. Yeah. So um, to kind of wrap this up a little bit, um, I can't help but think that you are an inspiration to little boys like yourself by using technology, right? Um, and putting your podcast out there, right? So, so many people can access that no matter where you live, no matter what, like there are so many people that can access that and they can see what you do as a profession too, so that you can be an inspiration to them. And I can't help but think that you're inspiring a ton of different people. So 
<laughs> Thank you. That's so weird to think about, but <laughs> I, I, I hope, uh, I hope, you know, someone, at least one person, you know, sees what I'm doing and can glean some possibility of what's, what's up, what's out there. That's the humblest statement I think I've ever heard. <laughs> All right. Well, Demetrius, thanks for joining today. And thank you for talking about this stuff. I think it's all conversations that need to be had. And I don't think we solve the world. I think it's just a starting point. But thank you for going down uh, into the weeds with me. So. <laughs> yes, no problem. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, don't get a lot of opportunities to go this in depth on all these different topics. So I really enjoyed the conversation um, and hope we, we hope we sort of created some opportunities to solve the world, solve the issues yeah. in the world in some little microscopic way. Yes, yes. Okay, so let's leave it. So when I first started this, uh, part of my deal was uh, to do a lip sync challenge, which okay. you don't have to do because <laughs> YouTube, um, they uh, they clip it out, right? But if you were to do it, what would be your go-to song? Oh, God. Lip sync challenge. Uh, <laughs> this one is extremely uh, bad. So <laughs> there's there's this one song. Uh, it's called Ain't No Fun, and me and my friends love the song. We'd sing it all the time. It's like 40 of my friends would all, if that song comes on anywhere that we are at, everyone will run to the room and start singing along. It's an extremely vulgar song, but it's so fun to sing. And uh, so it's Ain't No Fun. Who is it? It's Snoop Dogg and okay. Orangey, I think. But okay. uh, very obscene song that we can't we can't sing right now. So I hope you're not asking me to sing it. Nope. Oh, good. <laughs> but that that would probably be the one song. It's so okay. fun. Okay. So uh, side note to that. So uh, Snoop Dogg was one of my favorite artists when I was in junior high. Um, and I remember asking my parents, you know, when I was probably 13, um, what gin was because <laughs> 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 they were real proud of me at that moment. But hilarious. <laughs> That's so, okay for real we'll sign off thank you for doing this okay thank you so much carrie